0: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 17 of our Jazz Backstory Podcast. I am Monk Rowe, the Joe Williams Director of the Phileas Jazz Archive at Hamilton College, and your podcast host. For first-time listeners, a bit of review. Our podcast features the voices and anecdotes of jazz artists, both famous and unsung, sharing their experiences and knowledge about the jazz life. These voices are excerpted from the 450 video interviews that have been conducted for the Phileas Jazz Archive since 1995. I encourage you to check out Seasons 1 and 2 of our podcast and visit the Phileas Jazz YouTube channel, where you can view the complete video sessions. And a tip of the hat to our house band, The Orchestra in a Nutshell, and their original podcast theme, Riff City. Let's get to it. We ended season two with anecdotes from musicians, producers, and engineers, all speaking on the topic of creating jazz recordings. Episodes 17 and 18 extends the story of capturing music on tape, but this time, we address a different end product. When we started this oral history project in 1995, most of the musicians we met with had started their careers in the heyday of the swing era the roughly 10-year period from 1935 to 1945. Like all musical fads and styles, big band swing ran its course, a victim of economics, World War II travel restrictions, and an increasing focus on individual vocalists. The plentiful sideband jobs from musicians still in their prime mostly disappeared, leaving them with a looming question of what to do next. For many, it was time to find out what their parents had strongly suggested in the first place, our real job, a nine-to-fiver. For those who refused to give up the life, the calling, as Billy Mitchell described it, there fortunately was an option. Think for a moment of the multitude of movies, television, and radio programs you've seen and heard since childhood, and include the commercials, the news, and the weather reports. Then imagine every recording you have heard by individual singers, backed up by nameless bands and orchestras. Music plays an integral role in all of these, and that music was written, arranged, and performed by groups of musicians. Which brings us to our Episode 17 topic, In the Studios, Part 1. Let's start on the East Coast and listen to pianist Dick Hyman who found New York City recording studios to be the perfect home for his diverse skills.
1: Well now you're getting into uh, the studio scene in New Mm -hmm. York, which I was lucky enough to get into in the 1950s and stayed with, uh, well, into the uh, 1980s. Um, There were several hundred, as I estimate, couldn't have been more than it, maybe 200, people who uh, did most of the recording work in New York and by recording I mean not only the commercials for dozens of uh, producers around town but the phonograph records which were all uh, ad hoc kind of orchestras Andre Castellanitz Percy faith those those were mm-hmm. typical of the the uh, upper end of of things you might say yeah and uh the rock and rollers which you might say was the lower end and we worked for them too and uh then there were the film people uh because films a, a, a small number comparatively of films were scored in new york and composers would uh would uh pick up a band to do that. But when I say pick up a band, this is not just saying any, any old guy off the street could come in and, and do this. It was very specialized work. And all of these people, of whom I'm proud to say I was one, could really do any number of, of uh, jobs that were called on.
0: So if you were listening to Andre Castellans, did I say that right? Um, and then you listen to Percy Faith,
1: It's liable to be the same orchestra. The same orchestra. (laughs) Yes. And, uh, well, the rock and roll groups also were liable to have the same people, although it was a slightly different cast. But I learned that the more things one could do, the more gigs you'd be called on. So I could change hats. All of us could, really. Right. And uh, start being funky (laughs) And, and play for Atlantic Records. In the
0: evening, yeah. and do Costalones in the morning, and something else in between. <laughs> I went back and was reading your your first interview actually, and mm-hmm. you mentioned some of the people you played with, and uh, Ruth Brown and the Coasters and the Drifters. And yeah, you made a comment about their version of White Christmas.
1: Oh yeah, that was the session we did. White Christmas was that the Drifters or the Coasters? I, I think, think it was the, the Drifters. Yeah, you I said. believe you're right. Yeah. The session included. Jerry Wexler, who who is a good friend of mine in Florida, he's long retired, he points out that that session with the Drifters produced four hits. Uh, Not only White Christmas, but Bells of St. Mary, and uh, two others which I can't name. In those days, you know, it was customary to do four numbers in a session. And uh, now people take uh, a month to do something, and they track it, and they change it, <clears throat> and they mess around with it. Well, the union's union contract uh, specified four numbers in <clears throat> three hours. And many people did just that, even in pop records. Or maybe you go, go into a half hour or an hour overtime. But four tunes was the norm. At any rate, there was always something going on, and I loved it.
0: Yeah. You had said, um, the uh, we said to each other at that time, in 20 years, th- this was 1955 or so, in 20 years people will say to each other, listen darling, they're playing our song, yeah. and you know that's exactly what happened. All that funny music that we laughed at became classic in rock.
1: It's true. It's absolutely true. Uh, and we've all lived to see that. Mm-hmm. I, when I see now the, the, the music musicology that's spent on early rock and roll and the uh, the nostalgia and the way it's uh, permeated everything we do, I uh, just marvel at it. In those yeah. days, we we didn't really uh, respect it much.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we just did it. I don't know if you ever sit and listen to an oldie station. Yeah, I do. Are you likely to hear yourself? Very much. And, and do you remember... Yeah, I can remember some. Uh, can you can you tell me a couple spots that that I might hear? Yeah,
1: Johnny Mathis. Um, there's a little. There's one. That, a famous Mathis record begins with a piano figure. That chances, chances are. Chances are. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's you. That's one. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then there's another one that I whistled on <laughs> for for Johnny Mathis. Yeah, that's right. It was another Bob Allen song. He was he was a composer.
0: And I said, "It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful,
1: wonderful." Yeah, that's a whistling. That that was one of my. Well, you know, I had made my own. uh, I have to admit, hit record of uh, Moritat, which then became known as Theme from the Three Penny Opera, and then finally became known as Mac the Knife. Wow. in 1955 for MGM as the Dick Hyman Trio, which actually had uh, four people in it, I think. <laughs> and, and I whistled on that as well as playing the... Uh, uh, something, an instrument called the harpsichord piano. Um, so it became known around town that I was willing and that I was capable of whistling, willing to... Uh, undertake it and uh, capable of doing it without running out of breath. So I found myself being called to be a whistler on dates and I promptly joined uh, AFTRA, that is the singers' union, because their scale was higher than the musicians' union. And on a good day I might collect both scales from a single session.
0: That's great.
1: (laughs) So I'm the whistler on that, and I'm the whistler on something with Marion Marlowe for uh, Archie Blyer's company, Cadence, something called The Man in the Raincoat. Really? Yeah, one of those uh, spooky uh, third man theme
0: type
1: uh, Was it a... A lip whistle or was it a teeth whistle? No, no, uh, the teeth whistling we left to Bob Haggard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course, (laughs) of course. For the jazz triviaists out there, bassist Bob Haggard did a teeth whistle on the novelty tune, Big Noise from Winnetka. Something like... um, (whistles) Sounds a lot better with his acoustic bass. Dick Hyman, a fairly modest man, indicates the diverse set of skills required for this studio gig. As long as they were flexible and dependable, big band musicians fit the bill. They already were capable sight readers and well-versed in multiple music styles. While they may have missed the recognition and adulation connected to a big band gig, they did not miss the band bus and welcomed the relatively steady bread. Don't forget, for professional musicians, a gig is a gig. Numerous jazz players redefined themselves as simply versatile musicians, seeking out jazz gigs when they could, while making use of their talents during the day. Guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli was among the first called New York studio cats, and like Dick Hyman, excelled at playing the correct part, for whatever was required. So if you were to listen to sit and listen to an oldies radio station, oldies oh, yeah. meaning <laughs> you know, '50s and '60s music, you're likely to hear yourself now I and. Mean, oh
2: yeah, yeah. Oh, stand by me, I mean. I never, never realized until I, they sent me a check because they used the record in a movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, and uh, somehow, my son said, "Did you make this record?" I said, "I don't remember this at all." because <laughs> oh, we that's... did it three times a day. We were, uh, we were uh, at uh, all the major companies, uh, ten, to, ten to one in the morning, two to five, seven to ten at night, and sometimes a midnight session. Amazing. Yeah.
0: There was a core of, of people that were, what are they call first call? Yeah. Yeah. Like Mel Tinton. Milt was, was
2: there all the time. Milt and Georgia Vivier. Mm-hmm. I mean we had all jazz people, I mean the drummers. We're all from the from the big bands, all from the big bands, and then once they got that uh, those eighth note that eighth note field, they were in. Mm-hmm. They were in.
0: Now you played with uh, Dion and the Belmonts. Yeah, we did a lot of that stuff yeah. with them at the time. Did you ever have a sense of? Well, that song we did today, I think that is probably going to catch on.
2: No, no. Uh, once in a while, I, I would say it is a hit record, you know. And sure enough, it would be a hit. Hmm. But with Dion, I never knew that. I mean, we made the first six records we made with well, him were like million sellers. And the, the Wanderer, yeah, and the Teenager in Love.
0: You never quite know what's going to no catch the you never public's know. ear. Yeah, huh? yeah.
2: But then uh, that was the in those days a hit record was uh, oh. A glorious thing to have for for an artist to find a, find some, uh, Patty Page had a thing called uh, Doggy in the Window. How much is
0: that Doggy in the Window? Yeah, it was the
2: last, they made it the last five minutes of a, of a, of a three hour session. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you know? I think Doc Saverson was playing a trumpet on it.
0: (laughs) I mean I can just picture you going home and saying,
2: yeah man, guess what we did today. Yeah, itsy bitsy bikini.
0: (laughs) Were you on that? Itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. Oh my God. That was Brian Hyland, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right, that's right.
2: Another thing I made. made, uh, it's a funny story. Uh, I made uh, Ray Charles, uh, George on my mind. Mm-hmm. So we do the arrangement. Smash hit, big big hit. Thirty years later, I'm doing a Dick Cavett show, and uh, Ray Charles is on there, gonna <laughs> sing this tune. And the conductor comes up to me. I'm in a with Bobby Rosengard's band. <laughs> Guys, the guy said to me, don't, don't play the guitar on this record, because there was a certain kind of guitar playing in there. So <laughs> he was afraid I didn't know.
0: what. I, <laughs> so I laid out. <laughs> That's priceless. You
2: believe that? I can't believe that. It happened, actually happened.
0: Imagine showing up for work, not knowing what the job was. For busy studio players, this occurred two and three times every day. They might play music for a laundry detergent commercial, followed by a session of military marches and end the day playing behind a vocalist, a teenage heartthrob. Trumpeter Joe Wilder, who was denied a career in classical music, became one of the first African-American musicians to break the color barrier in New York City studios and radio orchestras. Here's a passage from Joe's biography, Softly with Feeling, written by his dear friend, Ed Berger. And I quote, There was so much variety in the kind of music we played that it was like spending several years in a conservatory. You would work six or eight hours a day, you got a good salary, and you could survive just by doing that. You would look forward to it, like a challenge, and you began to feel, this is where I wanted to be every day. It was a joy. End quote. Mr. Wilder himself was a joy, a consummate professional, a man who demanded respect by respecting others and leading by example. It's jazz vocabulary time, and one is a replay from episode 11, The Straight Eighth Notes. As Bucky said, once a big band drummer got the straight eighths, he was in. The new style of rock and roll required it. Now the studio scene brings us a few new terms, like the contractor. Every session with multiple musicians involved a contractor, a person who knew all the best players and booked them for these lucrative gigs. And then there's one take. Studio time is expensive and musicians who could read and record successfully on the first try, one take, rose to the top of the list. A soloist who nailed a difficult part the first time might be called a one-take wonder. These solos were often overdubbed, a process using headphones and multi-track tape, adding a part to music previously recorded. While this technology is not new, It was an adjustment for some swing-era musicians. On Phoebe Snow's first record, swing icon Teddy Wilson was invited to play on a tune. He arrived at the studio, sat at the piano, was handed headphones, and said, What's this? Where's the band? Speaking of one take, here's a lick our orchestra in a nutshell nailed on the first try. This wealth of well-paying work was enticing and occasionally busy studio players gambled with the logistics of making multiple sessions in a day, basically attempting to be two places at once. Trombonist Alan Raff shares an anecdote in this regard, as well as a bizarre studio moment. Alan was also the recipient of some sage advice regarding the daily life of a studio musician. Um... You found your way into uh, the studio scene
3: in New York? Yeah. uh, I always had that in the back of my mind that I wanted to do studio work. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mulligan, well the Elgart Band was a good entree into that, and Mulligan was a very good entree into that. Uh, I started doing, uh, through another connection I started doing a lot of the rock and roll dates. Um, And um, I got fairly busy doing doing those things. I was doing a Broadway show and I was playing Mulligan at Birdland, I was also doing dates during the day. Uh, And and I started doing some jazz dates. Uh, Keeping one contact while you make another and then honoring the commitments. If you overbook, and you do this all the time, you you book. Something that's right on the tail of something else, and mm-hmm. then you have the problem of trying to get out of the first thing a little bit early, or come to the second <laughs> thing a little bit late. And there's generally a way. Thank I remember it. once uh, <laughs> breaking the uh, my my daughter at the time with my forty three year old uh-huh. had a little uh, plastic cow, and I broke its foot off and put iodine on it in the middle of a rehearsal. I reached in and said, "Oh man, I just broke my tooth." You know, and <laughs> I, I managed to get out of rehearsal. I left the trombone on the chair, you know, just to make it look really good. And I went out took my other trombone and went and did a brass quintet date uptown you know <laughs> every now and then I'd have to do something yeah. like that but not too often right you mentioned doing uh, rock and roll
0: dates yeah many can you think of did, <laughs> did you even know the name of the bands that you were playing for sometimes no so you just came in no uh, like a horn section no and they'd put the music in front of you and you'd put the headphones on yeah and
3: I have no idea. I've done really? uh, I did I did stuff for Blood Sweat and Tears. I did stuff for Bob Dylan. But this I remember well. We were at Stay Phillips and we were recording Frankie Valley with the Four Seasons. And Frank Well, it wasn't even Frankie Valley in those days. It was just simply the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting as a band. They had an isolation booth for the singer and they had a control booth for the producer and all. And we were doing a Christmas album. And it came to uh, the tune, Oh Holy Night, and which starts on the third beat. So it goes, Oh Holy Night, no. you know, it comes in like that. Well, Eddie and I were the only two trombones. We were sitting side by side looking straight into the booth, and Frankie Valley was doing a solo on this. And he could not get this. Oh, ho- no, 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 Frank, they're telling him from the booth, you know, Do, uh, you have to start a little bit later. Okay. Oh, no, Frank, you had to start earlier. And by this time, he's getting into a panic. You know, the eyes are starting to get wide. and It went on, it must have gone on for, it seemed like a long time. It was probably about 10 minutes or so. And on, on recording time, where time is money, you know, 10 minutes of wasting time like that, you start getting nervous. So finally, uh, he just wasn't getting it. So. The producer said, "Wait, I have an idea." He sent two guys into the booth with Frankie. And we did the take with them holding his mouth like, like this, this, both sides of him, and Frank was there with the eyes popping, you know. And it was da 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 Oh, holy. <laughs> <laughs> they released his mouth. He sang the tune. We did a take. I'll never forget that. I have the record at home. <laughs> When I started doing really good studio work, and I was doing uh, dates with Bernie Glow and Mel Davis, who were the top two trumpet players in New York City for many years, uh, I felt, well, I've arrived. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm doing things with these guys, and uh, and I'm able to kind of hold my own with them. You know, Mel told me something one day that spun me completely around, and and I'm so happy he did. Uh, After a certain point when I realized I could play the trombone and there was nothing out there that was going to scare me too much music-wise, I started developing an attitude of uh, well this is all beneath me you know. And uh, we were doing a date, (laughs) Mel and Bernie and I were doing a thing for RCA Camden, I think it was a rip off of the Herb Alpert uh, style, Mm -hmm. Um, it was called Living Brass. And it was the Herb Alpert tunes done with studio brass uh, so that people could buy the record for $2 instead of $4. you -hmm. know. And they'd get the same music. In fact, they'd probably get it played better. <laughs> uh, and there was something that we were playing that was just terrible. And, and I remember looking at Mel saying, rah, 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 "And I started doing a, you know, real uh, you know, this not this ridiculous." I mean, you know, we'll look at this garbage. You know, Mel. During the break, he walks over and he puts his arm around my shoulders. He says, "Alan," he says. We're here to sell it, not to buy it. And wow, did that ever change? That changed me right there on the spot. Hmm. I thought, my God, yes. We're here to sell it, not to buy it. Here, I'm, I'm sitting there like I'm buying it. And that just turned me completely around, you know? yeah. When you learn something, you learn it immediately, like uh-huh. a ton of bricks. And that was, that was a ton of bricks at that time. Wow.
0: Alan Raff was fortunate that he received that advice and heeded it. Some players were worn down by the daily routine, as challenging and diverse as it might be. This was especially true with the pit orchestra gigs, the hit musicals that spent years on Broadway, the same tunes every night. Years ago, I sat in the pit during a touring production of Cats and was amused to see the electric keyboardist play his part, push a couple of buttons, pick up his magazine and read until his next cue, never turning a page of music or looking at the conductor. I'm assuming cell phones are banned in the pits today. Jazz instrumentalists and arrangers might start their day with a lightweight jingle session, then hail a cab to a second studio and enter the pop and rock world where they would overdub sweetening, like frosting on a cake. Manny Album a highly respected jazz arranger had a dose of reality when he worked in both of these settings. We didn't talk about the the jingle scene too oh, much. I, I, <laughs> something? I'll that, give you
4: a clue as to the, I, I I did Coca-Cola, I did Chevrolet, I did a whole bunch of things, and there was a, a, this is a clue as to how people think in the advertising business, or try to think. Um, we were doing a a. Pro- product for, I think it was cosmetics. It was a female product of one kind or another. And they called me in, and we started talking about a month before the recording session about, you know, what would be nice. And I said, well, I'd love to use a string quartet and a harp and maybe a, 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 a unamplified guitar, a, a classical guitar and a bass, no drums, and maybe a percussionist, maybe a vibes and some little bells or whatever. And the guy says, "Great, great boy, that sounds beautiful. It sounds like whatever." And we talk more and more. And I go in and see the the uh, the cuts that they're making in the in the film. And then they would call me up and say, "Well, they changed something," and and uh, come on and look at it. And, and you had to take very detailed, uh, you know, things about what was going on so you could fit the music. And finally, we get to the studio. The guy walks in and he looks in, in through the glass into the studio. And he says, "What's that violin doing there? I hate violins." So his associate says, "We've been talking about a string quartet for a month." He says, "Well, I thought a string quartet was four guitar
0: players." You seem to have uh, certainly survived the uh, rock and roll. Uh, onslaught. I mean, did it change your your work at all when rock and roll became it, the popular music?
4: Well, what happened to me a couple of times? Um, there used to be a group in Canada called the, the Guess Who, mm-hmm. and there was another one called the the Lloyds of London. Uh, they would come down to New York and, and cut uh, a basic track, and then I would go in and add strings and horns or whatever. And that began to become a, a, like a joke. Uh, they'd go in, and first the bass player would come in and play his line. And then the guitar player came in and he says, wait, wait a minute, I can't play with that you know, That G natural you're playing us so wrong, I can't do that. So the bass player would have to make another track. <laughs> and then the piano player came in and they changed. So to get one thing down sometimes took three or four days. Oh. Finally, they got two tracks down and I took them home and I, and I would write the, the sweetening is what they called it strings and horns and all that and we called a session and the string players came in and sat down and they they played the things through once and we recorded them the second time and they left and then the horn players came in and these guys were holy Jesus you mean you did the whole thing in 20 minutes ah. Uh, can't believe it. And I said, well, they're musicians. They read music.
0: Well, they're musicians. They read music. Gee, I really can't tell how Manny Album felt about the Guess Who. So tonight, when you watch your favorite show, tune into the music and remember no matter how striking or inconsequential it is, there are multiple people behind it, there are nowadays perhaps one synthesizer. We'll get to that phenomenon. In our next episode, we'll hear from the West Coast contingent, the LA Guns for Hire, musically speaking. See you on the flip side.